Grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 28. My first job at 15 years old was busboy at a local restaurant in my hometown. I did so well, I even got promoted to dishwasher after a few months. Uh, it was one of my biggest life accomplishments. But I think everyone should at some point in their life spend time working in a restaurant. How many of you guys have worked in fast food restaurant industry at some point? And I'm telling you, I learned so many things in that brief stint. I learned how to work hard. I learned about people. There are some really friendly people out there, and there are some really mean people out there. So I learned to treat waiters and waitresses and other restaurant workers kindly and to tip them well. I also learned that the customer is always right, even when they're clearly wrong. I was taught my goal is to keep the customer happy and to be at their service at all times. So it is a tough job. So be nice to food workers, except for that robot at McDonald's. You can be rude to her. No, I'm kidding. This morning, I want us to think about what it means to be in service to God. What does it look like to serve a God who needs Nothing. How can I, being a sinner, please and work for a God who is perfect? Is, is that even possible? I want to show you today it's not only possible, but it's what you and I were created to do. I want to show you that by looking at the service of a very specific group of people in the book of Exodus. These chosen men were appointed by God for a special role. They got to work in God's house and serve him directly. The house I'm talking about is what we walked through last week. It's a big tent-like structure called the tabernacle. The purpose of the tabernacle was for a holy God to be able to dwell with sinful people in their midst. Let's remember that that has been God's plan throughout this entire book. God made a covenant with Abraham where he said, Your descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky. And I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. And we saw in Exodus chapter 1 that that promise to Abraham came true. God's people had grown into this huge number. But there was only one problem. They were enslaved in Egypt. So God had a plan to redeem them and bring them out through a man named Moses. He sent ten plagues. He parted the Red Sea. And in that moment, in the Exodus, this huge group of scared slaves became a mighty nation named Israel. Moses then led the Israelites to Mount Sinai to meet their God. They saw his glory descend on the mountain. They received the Ten Commandments and the law, and they committed to obey it. Then Moses went back up Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and he received very specific instructions straight from God. Those first instructions were on how to build the tabernacle and all its varying parts. We Talked about that last week, if you were here with us. And today we're going back to Moses on the mountain with God. Because someone is going to have to take care of the tabernacle. And that's the purpose of today's section. We have some more detailed chapters to walk through. This is another few chapters that we might be tempted to, to skim over or even skip altogether. But, but just like last week, we need to see why these chapters were written and how they point to Jesus. And then what they teach us about how we can each serve God with our lives. Let's start in Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. It's God speaking. He says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, 
Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priest. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Okay, so after the tabernacle is built, God instructs Moses to get Aaron and his sons and make them priest. Let's ask the question first then, what is a priest? The priest is simply someone who is appointed to serve God on behalf of the people. He's like a mediator or a go-between representing God to the people and the people to God. The office of priest is not unique to the Bible. Nearly every religion in the world has some sort of a priest. Even with Christianity, those of you who grew up Catholic know that the Catholic Church has priests. But we don't have any priests here today, at least that I'm aware of. Have you ever wondered why we are different from everyone else in that way? Why we don't have a priest, someone we can go to who can meet with God for us and wear one of those cool collars? Well, there's a very good reason, and it actually goes to the core of our faith. We're going to come back to that in a minute, in a minute. it'll make sense, I promise, hang with me. But let's go back to our text first. So Aaron and his sons, their specific family line, they've been called to be priests. They're going to go before God and serve him in the tabernacle. And chapter 28 is all about the instructions on how to make the clothing that the priest would wear. Okay, do we really need an entire chapter on the clothing for the priest? Well, apparently we do, because the clothing tells us the significance of the office of the priest. Notice that the clothing would be made of the exact same materials as the tabernacle. That meant the priest would be dressed like a mini-tabernacle. And this was important because this tells us their job. Just as the tabernacle was set apart and made holy to God, and just as it was a way for God to meet with his people, so were the priests. That's what this whole section is about. So again, we, we have that separation that we've seen many times in this book. God wants to be with his people, but because he is holy and the people are sinful, there's a barrier. We saw that with Mount Sinai, that only Moses could go up. The people had to stay at the bottom. We saw that with the tabernacle, only certain people could go into the tent. The priests were another way of mediating God's holy presence to sinful people. And let me remind you, this was not a cruel thing for God to do. He was not putting some other obstacle in the way so it was hard for people to get to him. No, God was protecting the people. To come to God without a mediator, without a barrier, and to just step foot in his holy presence as a sinner, that meant death. That meant justice. So the whole idea of a priest was by God's gracious design. He could have just looked down at this people, saw their sin, and said, no, man, these people are messed up. I'm done with them. You see, God doesn't need us, but he graciously chose to make a way to be with his people. He chose to design a mechanism whereby he could have a relationship with them. And that idea is so important as we talk about Jesus here in a little bit. But let's look now at the specifics of the priestly uniform. First, there was the ephod. This was a linen garment with a front and a back held together by two stones, one on each shoulder. 
And notice what was engraved on each of those stones. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. We see something similar with the next part of the outfit, the breastpiece. This piece was attached to the ephod, and on the front it had 12 different beautiful stones. And on each one of those stones, there was to be engraved one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's why the priest had the names of Israel's tribes all over him. Jump to the end, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before God. We see here again that the priest represented the people to God. Next came the robe. And the interesting thing about the robe is that there were bells on the bottom of it. Here's why, verse 35. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. Why would Aaron need bells to avoid dying when he goes into the tabernacle? Uh, They certainly were not there to, like, alert God that he was coming as if he would have been surprised. Rather, they were there to remind the priest and to all who would have heard the sound in the, the seriousness in approaching the presence of God, that they needed to do so with reverence. Lastly, in chapter 28, we have the turban, the coat, the sash, and the undergarments. And the thing to note here is the gold plate on the front of the turban, which was that hat. It had engraved on it, Holy to the Lord. Again, a reminder that the priest was to be set apart and devoted to God. In chapter 29, we have the plan to consecrate the priest. It involved washing the men with water, dressing them in their attire, and anointing them with oil. Then they were to make a series of offerings and sacrifices. Some of them burned, some eaten, some of them had the blood sprinkled on the priest. If you read through this whole chapter, what you will notice is that it is very extensive and thorough. Man, why so much? Well, we got to remember that the, the priests were sinners too. These were not some super special holy guys. They were sinners just like everyone else. And so they had to deal with their sin before they could serve the Lord. But again, this wasn't just a one-time process. There are instructions to offer sacrifices over and over because it was understood these men would continue to sin. Here's how God sums up these two chapters, the end of chapter 29, verses 44 to 46. It says, I'll consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. We see it a couple times right there. Again, the Lord, the God of Israel, desires to dwell and live with his people. But to do so, everything must be made holy and consecrated to him, the tent, the altar, and the men who served him directly. Chapter 30, we read about a few final things concerning the tabernacle and the priest. First, there is the altar of incense, where each day the priest would burn incense in worship to God. Second, there is the census tax, demonstrating that the people would continue to support the work of the tabernacle financially. Third, there's the bronze basin, which was used to wash the priests before their work. 
And lastly, we have the instructions for making the oil and the incense, which were to be used only for worship of God. In chapter 31, we get the answer to the question, who is going to make all this stuff? Look at Exodus 31, verses 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So God took two guys, Bezalel and Oholiab, and he put them in charge of building the tabernacle and the priestly garments. He says that he filled them with the Spirit of God. He gave them ability and intelligence, knowledge and craftsmanship. So whereas the priests serve God through sacrifices, these men serve God using the tools of their trades. They worked with metal, stones, wood, and they did so artistically for the glory of God and the good of the people. And it wasn't just the two men, but we saw that all able men were given ability to help. We'll see later in chapter 35 that the women also played a role. They spun the fabric for the tabernacle. So we see all the people working together, all in service to God. Chapter 31 ends with another reminder to keep the Sabbath. Six days the people would work and the seventh day they would rest. And again, this was intended to remind the people of their dependence upon God and their worship of him. That was the whole point of all these instructions. It was all so that God could dwell with his people and his people could worship their God. Here's how this section ends. The last verse, Exodus 31, verse 18, says, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. After 40 days and 40 nights, Moses received all the instructions. He got the two stone tablets with the law written on them by God himself, and he prepared to head back down the mountain. Next week, we will see what he finds when he gets back to the people, and it's, it's not good at all. But let's stop here today, and let's ask the question, what does this mean for us? As I said earlier, we don't have any priest here in our church But that's not entirely accurate. What I meant is that we don't have an earthly priest and we don't need one because we have something better. We have a greater priest, a heavenly priest, a perfect priest, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood. Hebrews 4 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast. Our confession. Jesus, just like the priest in Exodus, took an offering to God. He made a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Except Jesus was a perfect priest with no sin to be atoned for himself. And what he gave was not an animal, but he gave himself. When he died on the cross, he sacrificed his own life one time for all the sins of the whole world so that we could be forgiven. And now the Bible says Jesus sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. He takes our prayers to God the Father. He mediates our relationship to him, just like the priest of old, 
but again, in a true and better way. So listen to me. We don't need a priest in a box to confess our sins to. We have one in Jesus. And we don't need a guy in a fancy robe or one of those cool collars. We have Jesus who receives our worship anytime and anywhere. But as we think about the fulfillment of the priesthood, we don't just stop there. No, when we become followers of Jesus, the Bible says we also become priests. This is amazing. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter writes to the church. He says, but you, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We might think today that the fulfillment of a priest would be a pastor. That's not what Peter says. Peter says every Christian is a priest. And guys, this idea is so important. In fact, it led to a literal revolution in the Christian church that we call the Protestant Reformation. In the early 1500s, the church, official church was Catholic. And one of the features of the Catholic church was a strong separation between the clergy and the laity. You see, the clergy, they was, those were the priests. And they were the professional Christians. They'd sworn off family and marriage and children and work, and they worked only in the church. They administered the sacraments, they heard the confessions, and they gave people the word. And their work was considered sacred and holy. While everyone else, the lay people, did all that worldly, secular work. And their job was just to support the priests and come and worship God through them. Well, this divide created all sorts of issues until Martin Luther, who sparked the Reformation, came along and said, wait a minute. According to the Bible, all of us are priests. All of us can live in service to God. And this became a major hallmark of the Protestant church. It's why we're here today. Martin Luther and the Reformers emphasized what's called the priesthood of the believer. And they used a Latin word to define how that priestly service would look for each person. In English, that word is vocation. We use the term vocation today as a synonym for career. But in Latin, it actually means calling. The idea was that life is not separated into spiritual work, like going to church and praying and reading your Bible over here on one side, and then on the other side, the, the, that secular worldly work that you have to do Monday through Friday. No, no, they restored the idea, the biblical idea that all of life is to be lived in service to God, including the work we do in the world. They, they found this in verses like this, Colossians 3.17. It says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, to all to the glory of God. And then later in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we see in these verses how every square inch of our lives should be used to worship and glorify God, including the jobs that pay our bills. That means whether you are a teacher or nurse or engineer or police officer or accountant, 
or chef, or stay-at-home parent, or student, or retiree, or fast food worker. If you work in faith and to the glory of God, your work is worship. That's the idea of vocation. It's using your specific calling to serve others and work the garden of God's creation, like Adam and Eve were called to do, to the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor. Martin Luther famously said, even changing a baby's diaper can be done in service to God. And I really like that one. He used another example of the Lord's Prayer. He said, you know, as Christians, we pray, uh, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And he said, well, how does God answer that prayer? Does God just send a loaf of bread to your kitchen table every morning? No, God calls people to be farmers and bread makers and delivery drivers and merchants to provide us with this bread. That's how God works out his will in the world. Sometimes people think that to really serve God and be devoted to him, you have to go into full-time ministry and do all your work only in the church. Guys, that is the wrong way to think. That was the Roman Catholic view. My vocation and my calling is to serve God as a pastor, but you have a vocation and a calling to serve God too, and it's not any less spiritual or less glorifying to God than mine. You're not called to work just so you can tithe and support the ministry of those professional Christians who do all the ministry. And you're not called just to put food on the table and pay the bills. No, you are a priest with a vocation and calling to glorify God and further his kingdom through your daily work. The question then is, what does that look like practically? Well, that's where we can go back to Exodus 28 to 31 and see two important truths I want to close with. Here's the first. Number one, God calls his people to specific task. We see this with the priest. God appointed Aaron and his sons specifically to the calling to take care of the tabernacle and serve God there. But he also had specific tasks for everyone else. Get this, God tells us that Oholiab and Bezalel were filled with the Spirit of God. That is a very rare sentence in the Old Testament. Not many people are said in the Old Testament to be filled with God's Spirit. But these guys were. And what were they filled with the Spirit to do? Was it to preach a sermon or pray a prayer or sing a song? No, it says they were filled with the Spirit to do architecture and carpentry and design and metalwork and art. We see right here that God intentionally makes people different with different giftings so that together all the work gets done. And that's true for us today. It's true, first of all, for how we serve one another here in the local church. Paul said this in Romans 12. He said, for as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Listen, every believer has been given spiritual gifts to be used for building up and serving the church. Some of us are gifted in teaching. Others in organization, others in hospitality, others musically, others with children, and all sorts of other ways. And in order to be the church that God has called us to be, we need every single person using our gifts. Paul said in another place that we're the body of Christ and we can't be a healthy body if some parts aren't working. This is why here at Blue Valley we routinely ask you to consider how you might be able to serve 
Like we don't just want people to serve. We need people to serve. If we're to be the church, God's called us to be. Like we need your giftings and abilities just as Israel needed everyone's to build the tabernacle. The question people always ask, ask then is, how do I know what my spiritual gifts are? So somewhere along the way, some well-meaning Christians invented these spiritual gift inventories where you answer a series of questions and then it tells you what your spiritual gifts are. And, uh, you know, sometimes that works great. I heard a story about husband and wife who decided to take it together. And the husband said, yeah, what'd you get? And the wife said, oh, my, my spiritual gift is celibacy. And that was, uh, that was a big issue. So, look, if that works for you, taking those tests online, hey, that's great. But I think there's a better way. I think there's a better way to find out your spiritual gifts. What is that better way? Well, it's to simply do something. <laughs> That's it. It's to do something. Find what area of service in the church interests you and what you might be good at and try it. Just do it. And allow the church community around you to affirm your gifting. That was one of the big ways I knew God was calling me to ministry. I didn't want to teach or preach. People said, hey, I think you might be good at that. So they got me to teach teenagers. And they said, you know, I think you have the gift of teaching. And I felt affirmed in that. I tried serving in little kids' ministry. And they said, I don't think you need to come back here ever again. This is, this is not for you, man. And I said, thank you, Lord. Man, I see every week so many people here in our church using their clear giftedness for the Lord I see people like Angie and Patrick Glenn teaching the four-year-old class. Can you imagine showing up every Sunday and teaching four-year-olds? Man, it is. Thank you. Yeah, it is so obvious to me. They are gifted by God and called to do it. I see Hannah Modrell leading our security team. She is gifted and called to do it. I never feel safer than when I see her out there serving. I see our amazing Sunday school teachers who are gifted and called to teach. And I could go on and on. Listen, if you want to know your spiritual gifts, just try something and then try something else and then try something else and see how others affirm or encourage you. See what you're good at and what you enjoy. I believe this is also true outside of the church walls. Nothing stresses young Christians more than trying to decide what career path they should take. A lot of times we think that we need to wait until we hear some mystical whisper in the middle of the night telling us exactly what we need to do. But in my experience, that is not how calling works. Instead, I encourage people to discern God's calling on their life by asking questions like this. What do I want to do? What do I like to do? And what would people say that I'm good at? If you look at the center of those three questions, it is very likely that you will find your God-given vocation because God works through our abilities and desires. And that may take different shapes and look differently throughout your life. You may use your vocation at different times and in different ways. It doesn't have to be in a particular field or even in a traditional workplace. But make no mistake, God has gifted you and called you to a specific task. Whatever that is, work hard at it unto the Lord and use it to further the kingdom of God wherever you are. Use your work as worship for the good of your neighbor, for the welfare of our city, and for the glory of God. 
Here's the second and last truth we see today. Not only does God call his people to specific tasks, but he also equips his people for specific tasks. What God calls you to do, he will equip you to do it. This was true of Aaron and his sons. This was true of Aholiab and Bezalel and all the other Israelites who worked in the tabernacle. They each had specific tasks, and so they were gifted and equipped in those ways by God. Guys, you have a unique personality and temperament and giftings. All of us do, and that is a good thing. These are not accidents, but they are designed by God specifically for you. If you're good at math, God made you good at math. If you're good at organization, God made you good at organization. If you're good at cooking, praise the Lord, he made you good at cooking. That means you can impact the kingdom of God in ways that none of the rest of us can. Look, I can't get a job at Garmin or Olathe Medical Center or Olathe South High School, but some of you can. And in those very places, you will have the ability to serve our community and reach those people for Christ. I can't reach those people, but you can. That's why Billy Graham once said that the next great move of God, he believed, would happen in the workplace. That is how we need to all start thinking about our jobs, whether they are paid nine to five or we work in our home. Listen, no job is perfect. They all frustrate us and stress us out because we live in a fallen world. But God gave Adam and Eve the command to work before the fall. Because above all, our work is a gift from God. It's given to us by his providence to be used for his glory and the furthering of his kingdom. What does that look like for you? Would you bow your head with me?